Let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Father, again we come and we thank you for the Bible and for your Spirit and for the life in Christ that you have given to us. Father, we thank you that Jesus is always ready to feed and to help and to give us the grace and the wisdom we need uh, to follow him. At this time, I pray that you'd be with each of us. Help me as I speak, help all of us as we hear, that what is said would be pleasing to you, would honor you and the text that we have before us, and we would bring you glory, and our lives would be changed, and we would see Jesus high and lifted up. We ask you this for your praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this morning, as we continue our series in Exodus, I want to talk with you from the subject, How the, the Lord's Mission uh, to be Known. The Lord's Mission to be Known. To the end that the Lord's priorities would shape our purposes. So the Lord's priorities would shape our purpose. Uh, the book of Exodus in large part is uh, just about that subject, that the Lord has a mission and his mission is to be known. He wants uh, the world to know. He wants the earth to be filled with the knowledge of his glory, just like the waters cover the sea. And one of the uh, key places in the book of Exodus where God endeavored to make himself known was through the plague narratives. And I'd like to look in large part at all of the plagues today uh, to give kind of a snippet look at them and to look at the overarching purposes. One of the chief um, goals um, uh, of these plagues is seen in chapter chapter 9, where God, in some sense, summarizes what he's up to in the plagues. Uh, if you turn to Exodus chapter 9, and uh, let's read verses 13 through uh, 17. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on your heart and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. It's interesting to note how uh, literally the Lord says to Pharaoh here, I will send my plagues against all your heart. Because in the Egyptian, uh, understanding the heart of Pharaoh is what controlled Egypt and controlled the land. And the heart of Pharaoh uh, was uh, to be light and not heavy. But this Pharaoh's heart was heavy. 
and God, by sending his plagues against the heart of Pharaoh, was saying that I'm taking the harmony and the order of your heart and I'm sending it into chaos. And so by these plagues, God was, in a sense, decreating Egypt. You see how he attacks the vegetation and he attacks the livestock and attacks the natural resources. And eventually he attacks men, the firstborn of all of Egypt. And by these actions, God is decreating the nation of of Egypt. He's turning it back into chaos. Um, There was a, a belief also in Egypt called Mayat. And it's what the Egyptians believed that the Pharaoh maintained. It was how everything was orderly and harmonious. And by these plagues, God was saying that that belief in Mayat or that belief in Pharaoh's ability to maintain order and structure, that power was not really given to them. It was only God's power. And he was turning this whole country into complete disarray to prove a point that the so-called gods of Egypt are not gods at all. They're figments of people's imagination. It's an operation of Satan and the demon world that they would believe these things. And God, the true God, the true creator was coming to rub that fact in that there's only one God and his name is the Lord. And so he aims to be known. He wants to be known. Uh, there is a, a, a bit of a summary in Exodus t- chapter 29, if you turn over there just for a, a brief moment. In Exodus 29, and in verses 45 and 46, you see this repetition of what God was up to in bringing his people out of slavery. It says in verse 45, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And so you see in these verses repeated God's dwelling with his people. The purpose of getting them out is Emmanuel, that they might dwell with God. And related to that purpose is that they might know that the Lord is their God. That the gods of Egypt are not their God. The gods of the Canaanites are not their God. But the Lord, He is their God. That they might know Him. And they might know that He brought them out to dwell with them. And you see a similar purpose in your own life as followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in in John uh, chapter 17, as he prayed to his father on behalf of his people, uh, he said in verse 2 of chapter 17, since you have given him authority over all flesh, referring to himself, to, have, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. 
And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so you see that God's purpose has not changed from old to new, that his purpose is still that his people would know him and know his purposes of redemption. Notice what Jesus says, that they might know you, the only true God, and they might know Jesus Christ whom you sent. Which implies much, doesn't it? That they might know that God, you are love, that you sent Jesus who comes to save his people from their sins. You sent Jesus who is Christ. He's the anointed prophet who teaches us the will of God. He's the anointed priest who has offered a sacrifice to save us and intercedes for us forevermore. And they might know Jesus, who is a king, the prophet, priest, and king, that they might know him as Christ. And that is, in fact, one of the chief purposes for which Jesus came. It says in John chapter 1 that he who is in the bosom of the Father, he has come to exegete the Father. He has come to explain him and to unfold the mystery of of the triune God to us. And so God's purposes throughout history remain the same, that God wants to be known. That is his mission, is that you would know him, and that you would be known by him. And we are called uh, to serve this great king in every area of our lives, and to humbly rely on His Spirit to work in us His praises and His purposes. John Piper once said that mission exists, you know the rest, because worship for the true God does not. That our mission, God's mission to be known, and our participation in that mission to make him known, that mission exists because worship of the true God does not. And that's primarily where God came down to Egypt because he was not being worshipped there by the Egyptians. And so he came down to deal with Egypt as well as redeem his people. The plagues sent on Egypt highlight God's desire to be known and reveal God in ways we probably would not otherwise have known God apart from his revelation through these uh, chaotic, uh, from a human standpoint, chaotic occurrences. Number one, what the plagues reveal about your Lord's patience. This is one of the things that we tend not to think of when we think of the plagues. We don't tend to associate those with with God's patience, Uh, but we should. Uh, The plagues do reveal God's patience. Notice, if you will, the backdrop and the backstory of the plagues. In Genesis chapter 15, we, we see these words, Genesis 15, beginning at verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years, obviously referring to their bondage in Egypt. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they will come out from with great possessions. As for you, you will go 
to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And God kept his people in bondage for 400 years because the land that he was bringing them to had people there already, the Canaanites, the Amorites, but their sin had not been complete yet. That God was going to bring judgment upon the Amorites as well. They were, the land was going to vomit them out because of their iniquity. But God patiently waited while his people were suffering. God's patience means uh, repentance. It says uh, in, in Romans chapter 2, uh, verses 4 and 5, Or do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Pharaoh's hard heart referenced in Scripture 20 times. Ten times in the book of Exodus it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Three times it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And six other times, seven other times, it says that his heart was hardened or his heart was hard. That he was storing up wrath for the day of wrath when God would finally bring the final blow to Egypt and bring his people out of bondage. Referencing this exact episode in, in the Exodus account, it's, uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 9, in verses 22 and 23, it says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, the very thing he said to Pharaoh, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. That God with great patience endured Egypt's idolatry God didn't need to do ten plagues. He came there and just wiped everybody out. But he patiently endured going through each of the different chief gods of Egypt and putting them down to demonstrate that, there is, that they are not gods, that he alone is God. God endures uh, sin. He endured Satan's uh, 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 work in the life of Pharaoh. He endured Pharaoh's hard heart. He endured the secret arts of the magicians, the wicked works they did in copying what he did at least twice. Some Egyptians, because of God's patience, demonstrated some Egyptians changed because of God's patient work in Egypt. In chapter 8, verse 19, it talks about how the magicians when they could not produce gnats out of the dust 
like Aaron and Moses did. They themselves said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. He made himself known. They were able to get the memo and see that this is something different going on here. Because God was patient. In chapter 9, verse, verse 20, you see how when God brought the hail on the Egyptians, He gave a warning to everyone. It says in verse 20, Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh harried his slaves and his livestock into the houses away from the hail. That God's patience was working on uh, some of those who were in, in Pharaoh's court. In chapter 12, you see in verse 37 and 38, it says, And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. This is after their leaving. But it says also in verse 38, A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And so a mixed multitude. Many Egyptians left Egypt with the Israelites because God's patience and kindness led them to change their opinion and change their thinking. The Lord's patience teaches us certain things. I've highlighted four things that the Lord's patience can teach us. Number one, it teaches us to be patient with evil people according to the teaching of Christ. God is patient with evil people and we should be patient with evil people as well. We often don't like to be patient. I'm only impatient when I have to wait. Jesus said this in Luke 6.27, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. And imagine if the Israelites were vindictive and a mixed multitude wanted to go out with them and they wouldn't receive them. But God calls us to be patient. He calls us to be patient with those who are our enemies. Number two, it calls us to be humble and grateful before God because God daily deals with your sin. Does He not? He daily deals with all of our sin. In Acts chapter 13, verse 18, it talks about God's people in the wilderness for 40 years, and it talks about how the language it uses, it says He put up with them for 40 years. 
Now, some translations say he carried them, but in the context, when you think about the evil they were doing, he carried them. Yes, he carried them, but he also put up with them as well. Number three, it teaches us to be humble before uh, people. As you, a sinful person, daily deals with other sinful people. Sometimes we are so tempted to be self-righteous and think we've got it together. You know, it's like the person who puts his shoulders back and puts his head up and looks down his nose at someone while he has toilet paper hanging to his foot. Because oftentimes we're seeping with evil as we look down our nose at other people's evil. We need to be patient and mindful that we are weak people and sinful people and we daily deal with sinful people and we need to have humility. It also teaches us, number four, to wait for the Lord, knowing that from His history, He has good reasons related to His own glory and our good to operate the way He does. His providence is perfect. Sometimes it seems like God is late. Jesus was late, remember? but he raised Lazarus from the dead. That's something worth waiting for. And, but sometimes, doesn't it seem to you that when chaos hits you and difficulties come, it's like, where's God in all of that? When's he going to show up? Come on already. And we get impatient with God. And we fail to realize his perspective that God is doing something while he's seemingly taking his time to come to our aid. We need to learn to wait. The Bible says in 2 Peter 3, 9 that the patience of God means salvation for some because He doesn't want other people to perish. He gives time for people to repent. And oftentimes that's the way God is handling evil people in your own life. He's giving them opportunity to change. And oftentimes it's you that God wants to use in that situation as an instrument of change to speak truth, to speak love, to be compassionate to people who are out to hurt you and harm you. God wants you to be kind because God may have that person's salvation in mind and may have you as the servant in mind to let them know about the Savior, Jesus Christ. But if we moan and complain and grumble and just want to get out of it as soon as possible, God may not be able to use us the way He would like to. So he calls us to be patient in the midst of, of what we think is a long wait. Sometimes it seems like God is slow moving, but God does not move slow. He moves in perfect timing with his purposes. Number two, what the plagues teach us about the Lord's power. The plaguing of Egypt was a polemic, which means it was an attack against Egypt's suppression of the truth about the true God. It was a hefty rebuke to Satan and all of the demonic world. That was the backstory of all the false gods and what Pharaoh and Egyptians had come to hold and revere. Egypt worshipped about 80 different gods and 
God isolated and aimed his target at some of the, the most prominent of those gods in his attack. In the first plague in chapter 7, verses 14 through 25, uh, there is a god named Hapi, or Happy, depending on how you pronounce it. Um, but uh, Hapi was the god of the Nile, and is often appears as a bearded man with breast and a pregnant belly, because the Nile would inundate, it would fill with water, and it would bring nutrition, water, food, irrigation, the power to transport goods and trade. And Egyptians looked at that as a god and looked at, well, here's the reason why we are so fertile and so full of life and so full of fertility is because of Hapi. But when God comes along and makes the Nile bleed, it's like he killed Hoppy. It's bleeding to death, and all the fish die. All the, the edible stuff in the Nile dies. And, and God proves that he's not a God at all. And not only in the Nile, but in the canals and in the vessels. And it says vessels here, uh, in, in chapter 7, it says that in vessels of wood and vessels of stone, uh, the water turned to, to blood. In the Hebrew, vessels is not actually there. It just says in wood and stone. And everywhere else, wood and stone occurs in the Bible. It refers to idols. And idols would get washed every morning by the Egyptians as a way of saying they're purified. And so when they washed them and they the water was blood, now they're defiled, and now they're bleeding, now they're dead. And God is rubbing it in that this God of the Nile that they worshipped is not God at all. The second plague was the plague of frogs. And there was a God named Hakit, which was a female a human female with a frog's head. Not someone you would want to take to the prom necessarily, um, unless God had done a great work of sanctification in your life. But the point is that this God, frog, represented fertility and life. And by God filling their houses and their bedrooms, particularly he mentions that, your bedroom and your bed, and on you and on your servants, all these frogs all over the place. And um, God is saying that He's the only one that can bring fertility. He's the only one that can bring this kind of life. Now it's interesting to note that in the first two plagues, Pharaoh's magicians copied what God did. God permitted and He allowed it by their secret arts, which is a code way of saying by their satanic arts that they could somehow duplicate what God was doing. And so Pharaoh's heart remained hard and he wasn't moved by any of this stuff because he said, look, my magicians can do the same thing. But what's, what's helpful to note is that his magicians couldn't take it away. Only God could take it away. And what's interesting about the frogs is that Pharaoh begins to pray when all the frogs are all over the place. He says, plead with me, get rid of these frogs, and God makes them die. Right there where they were, they just die and they stink. 
So all this fertility and life is now dead and stinks, just like the Nile stunk. Their gods stink. The idols stink. They have no life. They're dead. That's what God is saying through this. The third plague was set, the ruler of the desert. And this is where the magician's ability to duplicate stopped because Aaron struck the dust and it turned into gnats, which some people believe were stinging bugs like mosquitoes. And they were all over the place. And the, and the magicians tried, but they couldn't do it. And that's when they finally say, this is the finger of God. That God's mission to be known is finally beginning to bud. That the magicians are beginning to say, this has to be the finger of God. And we see that language, finger of God. You see it again in the book of Luke, where God, Jesus, references His kingdom. If I cast out demons by the kingdom of, by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. And what God is doing in the plagues is He's bringing in His kingdom. He's bringing in His reign. He's saying that Pharaoh is not a God. That Yahweh, the true Lord, He is the one who is God. And He's proving it. He's demonstrating it. He can do what no one else can do. And two times throughout the plagues, He says that you might know that there's no one like Me. That's what God says. None like me. And so he's making that point. Uh, the fourth plague was uh, the plague of the flies or the beetles. Not the singing group, but the beetles, a bug. Uh, the resurrection, life, is what this kafir, uh, this God, represented. And, uh, but God is the one who made them swarm all over the place and and then the fifth plague was the plague against the livestock. And Apis was a god, and Hathor was a god in Egypt, and they were the bull gods. And the sign of fertility is now dead. These livestock die. The god that they served, that's why the, Egyptian, the Hebrews could not sacrifice in Egypt, is because it would be an abomination to Egyptians to sacrifice in Egypt and they would get stoned because they worshipped the bulls that the Hebrews would be sacrificing. And um, the sixth plague was the plague of boils and Sekhmet was a God who brought healing. But here the boils are on all of Pharaoh's people and on Pharaoh and all of the Egyptians and uh, they can't, this, this particular God can't bring healing. They're all covered with boils. Their healing power, this God's healing power is impotent because He's not a God. And then the seventh plague, the plague of the hail, where God finally comes out of uh, the cloud, so to speak, and says, look, I could have killed you all a long time ago, but I've raised you up for this purpose, that my power might be seen and my name might be proclaimed, the God Nut and Tefnut and Shu, or the God of the sky, the God of moisture, the God who held up the sky. But the hail made it seem like the sky was falling and, and hail of this kind was very rare in Egypt, but this kind of hail fell on animals and fell on people and killed them. It broke trees in two. And, um, but God, starting at the fourth plague, up until this point, God makes a distinction Israel doesn't get any of these plagues. It's only upon 
upon Egypt, and we'll talk about that shortly. But this hail was um, as if the sky was falling and God was in control, and then the eighth plague was Senehem, a protector against pests, and the locusts came, and they ate up all of the vegetation. And here you see the decreation again, that all of the vegetation, the food was eaten up by locusts, and uh, this particular God who was supposed to control pest was completely overwhelmed and impotent to stop the plague of the locust. The ninth plague was the plague of Amun-Ra. The plague of uh, the sun was turned to darkness. For three days there was darkness in all of the place of Egypt. Egyptians worshipped the sun. They bowed down to the sun. He was one of the chief gods. And that the sun's power was often seen to be given to Pharaoh. Pharaoh was, was considered Amun-Ra incarnate, that he was the light. And, but in this particular plague, God brought darkness for three days, which signified death. In Egypt, the rising of the sun was a sign of life and resurrection, and the setting of the sun was a sign of death, despair, and judgment. And each day they would look to worship the sun as it rose and pronounce life over them. And they would um, humble themselves at night when the sun went away longing for it to return. It's interesting to note how Jesus was three days in the darkness, in death, followed by life eternal. And they were three days in darkness, followed by true death. The tenth plague was men. Pharaoh was often seen as a god. He maintained mayat, the order in harmony, with a good heart. But his sons and all of his firstborn are now dead, impotent to maintain life order or harmony. Therefore, Pharaoh is not a god. God made the point that he's not a god. He's impotent. He's helpless. He's powerless before the true God. God is decreating Egypt here as he did with Babylon. And so, he does these things to show that whatever Egypt was counting on simply could not be trusted. God controls his power, and he tempers it with mercy. In the eighth and the tenth plague, this phrase occurs that the locusts and the death of the firstborn, the cry of those dead children, the cry of their parents left behind, it says that these things were the worst that ever happened, and they would never, before, never again happen. That God would never bring a plague of locusts like he brought at this time. He would never cut off life like he did at this particular time. That God tempers his, 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 his judgment with mercy. That God's power is unique, and only the Lord can stop these plagues. Pharaoh could not, the magicians could not. What does the Lord power teach you? At least four things come out of this episode, these episodes of the plagues. Number one, it teaches us to worship the Lord alone, to worship God alone, that He is the true God and He's the only one to be worshipped. You know, sometimes it's funny how the plagues in Egypt, they affected the weather, and sometimes we have cute little ways of talking about the weather. Jack Frost nipping at your nose. 
old man winter. Who is Jack Frost? And um, Mother Nature. It's not right to fool Mother Nature. Mother Nature can go jump in a lake. There is no Mother Nature or Jack Frost. The weatherman complains about the weather. and I'd like to see a weatherman one day come back and say, after he predicted the weather wrong, which often happens a lot, I've noticed, in uh, Maryland. Um, but to come back the next day and say, well, you know, the Lord must have had other plans. He'd get fired on the spot probably. What do you mean the Lord? I mean Jesus. He's in control here. I'd like to see a weatherman actually say that one day. Um, it also teaches us not only uh, this, but um, to worship the Lord because you don't want God to reprove who He is and have to bring down your idols. Number two, it teaches us to pray. Even Pharaoh, though his prayers were not genuine, even Pharaoh continually ran back to Moses and said, plead with God for me, I've sinned. He changed his mind, it wasn't genuine, but even he knew that that was the path he should be on if he wants to remove this death from him, as he said at one point. It teaches us to pray. When there's chaos, you know, the prayers of a righteous man avail much. Elijah was a man who prayed, and he prayed that the rain would stop for three and a half years, and God heard his prayer. Why? Because Elijah was living in a context very similar to that of Moses where God's people needed to know, and Egypt needed to know, the Lord, He is God. Not Baal, the storm God. It's the Lord who, need, who is God. And you and I live in the same sort of situation where people need to know that the Lord, He is God. There is no God besides Him. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, He's the only one who is God. Sometimes we like to be politically correct and try to say, well, we're all talking about the same God. No, we're not. You read the Quran. It's a completely different God. It's not a God at all. Allah is not a God, as he is conceived in the books of the Quran. The Bible alone has the revelation of the true God. And you get that revelation through Jesus and Jesus only. We all see God in creation. He makes himself known. But our wicked hearts take that revelation and shape it in weird and evil ways. It's only through Jesus Christ that we come to really know who the true God is. I talked to a Muslim one time at, at Whole Foods, uh, my um, alma mater, and um, I, uh, he was a Muslim, and we talked, and he said, well, you know, we believe the same thing. I said, really? I said, what do you believe about Jesus Christ? Oh, he was a prophet. I said, is that all he was, was a prophet? Well, he was a great prophet. He did miracles. Is that all? And I gently said, well, Jesus is God. Oh, we don't believe that. I, so we don't believe the same thing, do we? we may, we're still friends, but we, we need to be clear. We need to be clear on what, what, what is truth. And, um, and we need to pray. Your prayers are effective and powerful. That God is willing to move, he teaches us through the, through, the, through the person of Elijah. God is willing to move heaven and earth in answer to your prayer when your prayer's posture is, I want people to know the true God. I want people through me to know who the true God really is. 
that God will work powerfully through your prayer when it's aligned with His will and His own mission to be known. We can pray for all kinds of things, but if we're praying for the things that God wants, you can be sure your prayer is heard and answered. The third thing it teaches us um, is to know and believe that the Lord is in control when there is chaos. To know and believe that the Lord is in control when there is chaos. Do not be anxious about anything, Paul said, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Present your request to God, and the peace of God which transcends understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. You and I are people who are supposed to have peace and joy in the midst of chaos. When the storm is, is, is blazing, when, the, when everything is going wrong, we, are, we have a God we can return to and go to and cry out to, and He gives us peace. He gives us comfort. He gives us joy. He gives us strength to sustain in the midst of the trouble. Number four, it teaches us that salvation is from the Lord and from the Lord only. And we see this highlighted in the last plague. We see it highlighted throughout because at some point God says several times that, that in the land of Goshen where His people were, there would be light. That their cattle wouldn't die. That the things would be distinguished with them. I've sanctified those people. And they're going to be different from Egypt who wouldn't believe in Me. But we see it come to full head when it comes to the last plague. That in every single house in Egypt, there was a dead body that night. But in the houses of Israel, there was no dead bodies. Not even a dog barked against an Israelite. And it all was because of the blood of the lamb. It was the lamb that they got, and they sacrificed that lamb and put the blood on the doorpost. And it's because God, the destroyer, sent his, sent his destroyer through the land. And he was looking. He was looking. He was looking for blood. And he saw the blood on the Israelites' doors and on the lentils, and he kept moving on. But then he got to the Egyptians' houses. He didn't see blood. So he invited himself in and found the firstborn and put him to death. All the way up to Pharaoh's palace. He entered into his palace and there was no blood on his door. And he put his son to death who was to be God. Pharaohs were considered God incarnate. Here God sent a destroyer to kill them. But for Israel, for those who hoped, for those who believed, whatever you say about Israel and their bumbling way of obeying God and their falling in the wilderness. They obeyed God right here. They followed His will right here. They got the blood and put it on their doorposts. They were believing in what the Lord was doing. And the blood of the Lamb saved them. That's how they got out of Egypt, by the blood of the Lamb. That's how you and I get out from under Satan. That's how you and I get from out from under our sin is by the blood of the Lamb. That's how you and I get equipped to serve by the blood of the Lamb. That's what our benediction teaches us. The God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you 
It's the blood that equips you to do His will. Because the blood speaks of His love. It speaks of His grace. It speaks of His desire to dwell. It speaks of His desire to be reconciled. It speaks of His holiness. That a sacrifice has to happen if I am to dwell with God. If I am to be His servant. If He is to be my Lord. Something has to happen. And that something is Jesus on a cross for me. And this leads us to the, per- the plagues teach us about, reveal about the God's purposes. They reveal that God's name is to be proclaimed, but it reveals that God, uh, several times in this episode, um, eight times to be exact, ten if you count some other illusions, God mentions that He wants His people released for what reason? That they might serve me. That that blood of the Lamb is not simply a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's not, a, it's not just a, a liberation thing. But it's, 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 it's leaving one false master for the true master, the true king. That He delivers His people that they might be His servants. And that's what God calls us to. To be servants in this mission to make Himself known that God uh, in this in this long narrative he says in chapter 7 verse 17 I am the Lord verse 8 verse 10 there is no one like the Lord our God in verse uh, 8 22 I am the Lord in the midst of the earth in chapter uh, 9 verse 14 he says that there's none like Him um, in all of the earth. That He is the Lord. The earth belongs to Him in chapter 9, verse 29. His purpose is to sanctify a people. You see that in plagues 4, 5, 7, 9, and 10. Israel is distinct. His purpose is to have you sanctified for His service. And it also teaches us that God has a zero tolerance for idolatry. That God came and put these false gods down. He judged them. He executed them. He terminated them. And the same thing is true in our hearts that God does not want idolatry in us either. That God's gracious purposes, His loving uh, uh, actions uh, demand a devotion and a dedication and a consecration to Him that is unrivaled. Like it says in the book of Revelation, we overcome the accusation by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony, and it says to the effect that we don't care about our lives. We're willing to give them up so that the word of our testimony about Jesus, that He might be known, might be heard by others. Paul said it in similar ways in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. He says, I don't have any care about my life at this point. I'm not worried about anything, Paul says. I just want to testify to the grace of God that He has given to me. That should be the same thing with us. No matter what you do in life, no matter what your job might be, you are a chosen race, you are a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, you're a treasured possession of God, 
That's where they were going in chapter 19. A treasured possession. And you've been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light to proclaim the excellencies of the God who did that. So wherever you might be, whatever you might do, it seems like the first order before you walk into your place of business is to say, God, I am a chosen one. I am holy. I am treasured possession. And I am here on the job to proclaim your excellencies. Now give me opportunity that coincides with what I'm called to do here by my employer so that I'm not preaching when I should be <laughs> doing what I'm supposed to be doing. But I'm doing the job the way it's supposed to be done. And when opportunity presents itself for my real identity to come through, for, for Jesus to be known through me, that that would happen as well. I was told when I worked at Smith Klein Beecham, I used to sing hymns to the animals because there was no one else in the room but me and the animals. I was singing hymns to God, but the animals were enjoying them. And I was pulled in the office by a supervisor and said, you're not allowed to do that because it upsets the experiments. I said, okay. So I went and talked to the investigator. I went straight over their head. I said, if I sing in a room, like real loud, does it really upset your ex experiments? Oh, not at all. Enjoy yourself. I said, okay, thank you. So I went back and gently told the supervisor to have a conversation with the investigator, and I just kept right on singing. Now, you may not be able to do that on your job, but my point is, God is creative. He's got all kinds of ways to get you talking to people about Jesus. It might be when you leave and go get gas. But whatever the case may be, we're called to be witnesses. His purpose is to be known and to give life to all who believe. Jesus revealed the Father, and He revealed Himself as the only way to the Father. This is good news. It's great news that that God would bring us out of bondage and out of slavery, out of slavery and addiction to Satan and to sin, and bring us into a life lived for Him, the life that you were created to live and intended to live, and that's worth sharing with someone. Let God's mission, let God's priority to be made known, shape your purpose in life to make Him known. Let's pray. Our Father, in Christ's name, we give thanks to You for Your grace and goodness in our lives. We thank You that You have a great mission in this world to be known. There's no one else in this world worth being known more than you. You're the creator of everything and everyone. You own everything. Lord, thank you for making yourself known through Jesus Christ to us. And Father, I pray that you'd stir us wherever we set our foot to be prayerful, to be ready, to have a heart posture where we are servants, willing, as treasured possessions, as chosen, as holy, to declare your excellencies, to tell the story of how we got out of darkness by the blood of the Lamb and were brought into your marvelous light. Equip us for that purpose, we pray, wherever we might be. Work in us creatively and use us on our jobs. I pray for every single person here in, our, in the hearing, who works. I pray that this week you would give them a flood of opportunity to share Jesus with those they work with. And it would be the most natural thing that happens on their job. Father, I pray that you'd equip each of us, fill us with your spirit and power, with your love and your humility, 
that we would gently go and nudge people to look at Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. At this